China's stock market is plunging. Its banks are suspect. Is the country's economy on the verge of collapse? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. It's been rumored that China's banks have become so saddled with debt that they're in danger of wide-scale failure. Meanwhile, the nation's stock market is, in the words of more than one expert, in freefall. What's going on? Has this growing economic powerhouse finally hit a wall? What's the real picture behind the notoriously secret front that shields all of those state-owned banks and companies? And how did China get into this mess in the first place? Answers today from my guest, David Dollar, senior fellow in the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution. He is the U.S. Treasury Department's former economic and financial emissary to China. In addition, he worked for more than 20 years at the World Bank, serving as country director for China and Mongolia for part of that time. So he's eminently qualified to explain the current state of China's banks, stock market, and general economy. And he'll offer his view on how all of this affects China's investment and trading stature around the globe. So here is my conversation with David Dollar. David Dollar, welcome to the program. Uh, Very happy to talk to you. Now, over the years, a number of people have expressed concerns about the stability of the Chinese banking system, the possibility that it's carrying a lot of non-performing loans, that it's in need of of restructuring, that at any moment it's set to collapse. It hasn't happened yet, but I'm wondering, are we justified in having those concerns? It's certainly justified to worry about it. You know, they have a very large banking system. It's dominated by a few state-owned banks that are not very efficient. They've put out a very large volume of credit over the last seven, eight years. So I'm sure there are non-performing loans building up. They report implausibly low levels of non-performing loans, like about 1% of the book. And I just think there's standards for deciding what's non-performing or just not very strong. Much more likely that it's significantly higher multiple of that. Supposedly, uh, in recent years, China has moved to address the issue of its non-performing loans, either reducing them or maybe, I don't know, writing some of them off. Do you believe that's the case, or is that just sort of PR to assuage concerns over that particular problem? No, there's definitely some truth in that. You know, They had a big wave of, of non-performing loans after the East Asian financial crisis and stretching into the early 2000s. So a little bit more than a decade ago, they did take a lot of the non-performing loans out of the banks, put them into asset management companies, made capital injections into the banks. That's, that's about the time that their big banks started to go to the Hong Kong market for IPOs. So Bank of China, China Construction Bank, 
uh, Industrial and Commercial Bank of China. You know, they're all traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. And that's when they started to report much lower levels of, of non-performing loans. Uh, but given the big credit boom of recent years, it, it makes sense that probably the non-performing loans are starting to rise. It's my impression that banks in China play a larger role as providers of credit to the China financial system than perhaps is the case, say, with banks in the United States that rely more heavily on perhaps financial markets and non-bank lenders. Is that the case? Yes. You know, in the United States, the stock market capitalization is about three times higher than all the household deposits in the banking system. In China, that's more or less reversed. The household deposits into the banking system which are then on lent to firms, this is a much more important source of financing. You know, the stock market is coming along. Uh, it, it had reached upwards of 100% of GDP, which is starting to look like what we see in developed countries. But of course, that proved to be a bubble that's then corrected. So it's it's dropped about 30% from that. So right now it's about 70% of the size of the economy. And in the U.S., the ratio would be at least twice that. So Basically, bank lending plays a much more important role in financing in China and direct, what we call direct finance of stock markets and bonds, much more important than the United States. Yeah, I do want to talk more about the stock market in a moment, but just want to stick with the banks for a little while longer. Um, I take it in China, obviously, that gov- government investment exceeds private sector investment by quite a bit, and that continues to be the case. Yes, and so you know, one reason you can think that the banks have a lot of problems but not be too worried about a banking crisis is you are talking about state-owned banks, which mostly lend to state-owned companies and local governments. So it's all inside the family in some sense. So the government is overwhelmingly the largest shareholder in the four big banks that dominate this system that have about 60% of banking assets. Uh, and then quite a few of the smaller local banks that exist in China are actually owned by local governments. So if you really added up the total a government share of ownership in the banking sector, you're certainly going to be getting up toward at least 60%, maybe 70%. So it's a government-owned sector. As I said, a lot of the lendings to government, state-owned enterprises and local governments, it makes sense then to look at the overall financial health of China. And the IMF staff assessed that the overall financial health is pretty good because the country has a lot of resources They've got the $4 trillion of reserves. They own all the land and lots of real resources. So it, it would take a pretty big mistake on their part to create a banking crisis because, as I said, it's really all in-house. What about the, the currency issue, the value of the yuan, which, as I understand it, is sliding against the dollar again after having gone through a period where it appeared to be strengthening? What does the concurrent exchange rate of that currency, how does that relate to the banking situation in China today? Well, the currency has been pretty stable for a while now. There's been a, a very small amount of depreciation against the dollar, but it's really extremely minor. So it's more accurate, I think, to say that the currency is pretty stable against the dollar. And the dollar, of course, has been rising against everybody else. So that means China's trade-weighted exchange rate has been appreciating. It continues to appreciate. That's appropriate. It's a, it's a country with a large trade surplus and, and a lot of productivity growth. Yeah, so I, I think their exchange rate management is pretty solid. It doesn't have too much relationship to the banking issue, China's financial system is closed off from the world. 
So, you know, you or I cannot easily move money into China. We can't put money into a Chinese bank and take advantage of their higher interest rates. And by the same token, we also can't lose confidence and pull money out of China. So they're pretty disconnected from the global financial system. So I really don't think the exchange rate has a lot direct connection with these banking issues. China has been under fire from U.S. interests for quite a, quite a while now for so-called currency manipulation. I'm wondering, is that a legitimate beef or is that just something uh, that, I mean, is, is the yuan just performing the way it is because of other, other issues other than simple currency manipulation? It was, a, it was a legitimate beef 10 years ago. You know, I often feel that our members of Congress are sometimes fighting the last war. So 10 years ago, the currency was seriously undervalued. They had a large trade surplus that kept rising. It got up above 10% of GDP, which is quite disruptive. But that's just about the time they started letting the currency appreciate. You know, I remember when the currency was 8.3 Chinese yuan to the dollar. Now it's 6.2 Chinese yuan to the dollar. That's about a 25% appreciation. Plus they've had somewhat higher inflation than the U.S. And then, as I said, the U.S. has been in an upward trend. So put it all together and you get what we would call about a 40% real appreciation of the Chinese currency. That's eliminated their very large trade surplus. And the IMF says the currency is now fairly valued. So I'm afraid some of our stakeholders seem to just be fighting the last war. So turning to the stock market, as you yourself just pointed out, and other people have described the recent condition of it as in being in free fall. I don't know if you agree with that term, but why is China's stock market plunging? Uh, so I do agree with the term free fall. I think the, you know, the fundamental problem is they had a stock bubble. You know, they really let the stock market get too high. And, you know, sometimes it's hard for the government to prevent a bubble. But in, in China's case, there were government officials who were talk, talking the market up, you know, and telling people it was patriotic to buy stocks, you know, even when the prices were clearly high. You know, the most common metric we use is the price earnings ratio. For the Shanghai market as a whole, it got to about 28. It's not alarmingly high, but it's, but it's clearly very high. You know, historically, the P.E. ratio in China has been closer to 10. For a long time, the stock market was in the doldrums, even though they were growing well. And then starting a little bit more than a year ago, it just started rising. And then they introduced a number of measures to encourage it to rise further. So they started allowing margin trading for the first time. Uh, and they you know, brought some new issues to the market so that the number of firms was growing. There was reasons to be enthusiastic, but as I said, I think it turned into a bubble. And then it was very striking how quickly it fell. Of course, we've had bubbles in the U.S. that have popped, but the, the speed at which the index started dropping was really very dramatic. They came in with some ad hoc measures. They're not letting large shareholders sell out, for example. They tightened up the measures allowing short selling, for example, when you can bet against the market. They have allowed a lot of firms to just declare that their shares are not trading. And so that means in some way that you don't know what the index number means. If a lot of shares can't be traded starting, you know, starting from the opening bell, uh, then it's really hard to say what the index means. In response to those measures, things seem to stabilize a little bit, but then they started going down again. So my sense is those kind of government interventions trying to prop up the market are counterproductive. They're not going to work. 
Uh, and then they signal to people that the government can't really manage this. I, th I think that's unfortunate. It, it's stabilized at a price-earnings ratio closer to 20, which is a little high, but certainly getting closer to rational valuation. So you know, markets don't always follow price-earnings ratios, but uh, you, would, you would hope that things would stabilize now that we're getting down to more rational valuations. But, but I don't understand why some analysts are now talking about possibly a new bull market <clears throat> because, frankly, it still seems high relative to the underlying profits of these companies. Didn't investors end up borrowing a lot of money to buy shares and prop up the market, thereby creating a whole new pile of debt? Yes. Yeah, so they did start allowing margin trading over the last year. But, you know, there were fairly tight restrictions on it, so I don't think the amounts were, were enormous. You hear stories about you know people turning to other sources of borrowing, uh, including informal markets, to to buy stocks. So that potential that people that investors are a lot more leveraged than it looks like in the official margin data. I think I think that is worrying. The total amount of credit in the system is worrying. Uh, but as I said, it is you know then they have this this protection in the sense that it is a largely uh, state-owned economy still. So that, that carries all kinds of problems of their own, but it's not likely to have a banking crisis. Is it the case that most of the shares, the lion's share of the shares in the Chinese stock market are actually held by individuals and there are fewer institutional investors? And if that's the case, what impact does that have on the nature of the China stock market? Yeah, it is an interesting feature of the market. It is mostly individual investors. A lot of them are small. China's so big, you know, the numbers are always enormous. So there are literally hundreds of millions of households that have stock accounts. You know, probably some of those are very, very small. Um, but there's, you know, there's a growing middle class. They have a lot of savings. They're looking around for investment opportunities. I think that makes the market more prone to volatility because you can get this hurting behavior as prices go up. People think they can only go up. And then when things start to drop, you know, people panic and some of them are squeezed out by margin financing. Institutions usually have more, you know, you know, more options and sophisticated advisors. So they're not so likely to be sucked into a bubble on the way up. And they're less likely to panic and sell out on the way down. Though, as I said, we, we've certainly had bubbles in the United States. So we, we should be cautious about criticizing would you liken it to the Japanese stock market uh, in which the holders of stocks in Japan are many Japanese households? Is that not similar? And uh, that didn't go well. It seems. No, that didn't go well at all. I, I do think there is some similarity. I'm not sure about the exact data. My sense is that Japanese, big Japanese bubble 20 plus years ago was, was actually more severe than anything we've seen in China. And, you know, and, then, and then it popped and had a uh, quite a devastating effect on the Chinese economy. I'm betting that this current correction in China is not going to have a big effect on the real economy. Because, you know, we started our conversation about how the Chinese stock market is still pretty small relative to the economy. I would say most firms are not using it to raise funds. Households have less than 10% of their wealth in the stock market. So I, did, I don't think this correction is going to have the same kind of effect uh, that we saw in Japan, for example. Given the fact that investors in Chinese companies have less of a voice in the way those companies are run than, say, they do here in the United States, does that not turn the market into more of a speculative venture, uh, leading to more uncertainty and ups and downs such as we've seen? 
Yeah, I think it, it definitely turns into more of a casino. Because you know, a lot of these stocks that are being traded, as I said, they are essentially government-owned companies. Take, you know, the banks, for example, you know, the government owns something like 80%, and they've chosen to sell 20% on the market. You know, you're very much at the whim of the government then. You know, they're going to choose the managers. They've got multiple objectives. They may decide, you know, well, we need the banks to stimulate the economy, and they might urge certain types of lending or, or very low interest rates. So you know, you, you, hard to predict what kind of profit you're going to get in that environment. You certainly can't expect the senior management is maximizing profits, you know, because that, that's not what those entities are set up to do. So it is, it is a little strange, a strange kind of animal, and I, and I think that's one reason why it's remained relatively small uh, until we just had that big run-up over the last year. Well, let's broaden the discussion to talking about China's economy in general. Specifically, I'm wondering... What is the impact of what's going on with the banks and the stock market on, for instance, China's infrastructure projects at home and abroad? Let's start with at home. As I understand it, there's quite an overcapacity now of Chinese infrastructure after all these years of building up. Is that true? Yes, I think there's an overcapacity problem throughout the economy. So they've built too many apartments. About 20% of urban apartments are empty. Uh, They've way overbuilt capacity in steel and cement, so those sectors are operating at about 50%. And then infrastructure is a little bit more debatable. Certainly as an American, you know, if you travel there, you'll go to second and third tier cities that have beautiful airports that make a lot of American airports look rather sad. They've got a wonderful highway system, uh, high-speed passenger rail developing. So there's a positive aspect to a lot of that infrastructure. question is whether... They're overbuilding it. My instinct is that in recent years they are overbuilding it. You know, some of the most recent airports have almost no flights, so that looks nice, but but that's not a good use of taxpayer money. Uh, some of the high-speed passenger rail segments go through pretty sparsely populated areas, so they they do seem a little bit addicted mm-hmm. to building infrastructure as part of growing GDP. And the, you know, the problem is if if you build infrastructure that's highly utilized. You know, that's a smart investment. And if you build white elephants, things that are not used, well, then, frankly, that's just waste. Uh, a lot of it's backed by debt. So you will eventually have a problem of mounting debt without getting the kind of oomph on GDP that you were expecting. Yeah, but haven't they been trying to shift economic development away from the coastal industrial areas more to the rural uh, interior, thereby necessitating this kind of infrastructure buildup? Because without it, you can't achieve that goal. That's part of their strategy. But again, I think they've overdone it. Uh, you know, the, the other way to go, to be perfectly frank, is people would like to move to coastal cities. Uh, they have a system that restricts people's mo- mobility. Uh, if they eased up on that, then you get millions of people moving from the center toward the coast where you already have a lot of productive infrastructure, a lot of productive firms. There's starting to be labor shortages in coastal provinces like Guangdong. So I think from an economist point of view, the rational thing is to let people move. But you're right. Their tendency is to say, hey, let's build you know, a whole new set of infrastructure in other parts of the country. Some of those parts of the country are not doing well at all, and so I think the evidence is that that strategy is not working so well. Who knew that the country with the world's largest population is going to start experiencing labor shortages? That was an amazing uh, development. Well, they're localized. They're localized, and that's what happens. You know, they have lots of different distortions in their system, right? So when you you don't let people move around, then what will happen is you can have a 
fairly acute labor shortage in one fast-growing area where wages start to rise and that becomes a bottleneck. And then there's still lots of underemployed labor in other parts of the country. Uh, so allowing more mobility is, is definitely in their interest. What about China's investments in infrastructure and capital projects abroad? It seems to be the main way in which China is asserting its dominance as an economy on a global scale. I'm thinking, of, for example, of the planned Nicaraguan canal to compete with Panama, but even less blue sky stuff all over the world. Has China been able to keep up that level of investment or is that threatened by what's going on domestically? Well, frankly, the press exaggerates a lot of that. Some of those are vague plans, like you mentioned, the Nicaragua Canal. That's a private Chinese entrepreneur, you know, who's got this vague intention. I predict it'll never happen because it's not a particularly good investment. But by, you know, locking up that concession, he also got access to some very desirable tourist destinations. He's developing, you know, hotels in particular places. He's got concessions for that. So I think be careful what you what you take away from some of the press coverage. You know, when you actually look at the data, China's becoming a significant investor around the world, but certainly not on the scale of the United States. You know, in, in Africa, for example, where China's gotten a lot of attention, the stock of Chinese investment is less than five percent of the total stock of foreign investment. So Africa is still dominated by big Western companies that went there a long time ago for oil and gas and minerals. Chinese are newcomers. They're big in a few countries. Uh, but when you look at the whole continent, China is still a relatively minor player. That's even more so in Latin America. Back home, is China succeeding in the early stages of its attempt to transfer its economy to more of a domestically-based consumption economy as opposed to an export-oriented one and encouraging the rise of a middle class? Is that working? Yeah, that's actually going surprisingly well. You know, So I think a lot of people are questioning some of the data coming out of China just because it seems surprising. I think the data are basically right. The economy is growing at about 7%. But the key to that is that the service sectors are growing very rapidly at more than 9% in real terms. Most consumption is services. People's incomes are going up. Nominal incomes are going up at about 11% per year. That'd be nice for you or me, right, if our incomes were going up at 11% <laughs> per year. You know, so the people are consuming more. Consumption is mostly services. Now, on the other hand, industry is in very bad shape in China. Right? Industry is mostly producing for investment and export and the industrial sector is growing very slowly, uh, only about 2% in nominal terms. So that's where you face a lot of the problems in China. So you've got this dualistic service sectors doing well, industrial sector doing poorly, you know, and you add it all up and you get moderately good performance for the whole Chinese economy. Yeah, but tooled up for export at the same time that many companies are reshoring their manufacturing capacity back to the West or other parts of Asia, Latin America, and even the United States. So... That seems yeah, to be yeah. Part of, part of the problem with the whole Chinese strategy was that you know, as you start out as a small developing country, your exports can grow faster than twenty percent per year. You're getting more market share. That's a boost, but that has to run out of steam. You know, they're the biggest exporter in the world, and the global market's growing slowly. You know, global trade's growing at two or three, and there's just no way China's exports can grow much faster than two or three. So now it's a lagging sector. You know, and that's where a lot of their industrial production was aimed at. And, you know, consumption is not mostly buying heat bars of steel and, and tons of cement. Housing is related to consumption, but they overbuilt it. 
the consumption that's growing now is people are going on vacations, you know, they're going to the movies, they're going out to restaurant meals, all of that's very healthy. Uh, but as I said, most consumption is services, and so it's not providing uh, impetus to those old industrial sectors. So last question, is China's financial system as it now exists with the controls that are in place and the way it's all set up, is it up to the challenge of China becoming the world's biggest economy in a marketplace kind of economy sense with all the controls and all the trust and all the stability that comes with that? Yeah, I'm going to give you a kind of a wishy-washy answer on that. China's population is so enormous that it doesn't have to do that well to be the biggest economy in the world. So I think given all the problems you and I have been discussing, I don't expect them to do any better than moderately well over the medium term. You know, Their real growth rate could easily slow down to 5% or below. So I'm not an extreme bull on China. But they only need to grow at 4 or 5% to overtake the U.S. as the biggest economy in the world in approximately a decade or maybe 15 years. Uh, and they may very well still have this very imperfect financial system. It has gradually improved. So if it keeps gradually improving over 15 years, it'll be in better shape. They're starting to allow private banking, for example. They're still very close to foreign banks. You know, I feel like one of the obvious things they could do is open up to international banking. That would strengthen their system quite a bit. Uh, but I, But I wouldn't be terribly optimistic about reform. I think they'll have a very imperfect financial system, but they'll pro probably still emerge as the biggest economy in the world. David Dollar, I want to thank you so much for being with us today to help explain what's going on in China's financial system and its future as a global economy. Thank you very much. Oh, it was a great pleasure talking to you. That was my conversation with David Dollar of the Brookings Institution, talking about the growing problem in the Chinese economy. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. <laughs>